Tom Hayes arriving at court today with his wife, a trader who made millions and was paid millions. But he was cheating, rigging the rates to maximise his profits. What this verdict means is that the jury were sure he was dishonest in his manipulation. I think as well it makes an immensely important point, which is this, that bankers are subject to precisely the same standards of honesty and dishonesty as the rest of us. That's the BBC News report on the day in 2015 that Tom Hayes was sentenced to 14 years in prison for rigging LIBOR. Hayes was accused of being the ringleader of a global conspiracy to rig LIBOR for his own benefit, making money off trades that involved LIBOR. LIBOR is the London interbank offered rate, the rate at which banks lend to each other and a rate which influences credit cards, mortgages and loans to households and businesses. After the anger caused by the financial crisis and the damage that bankers had done, here, at last, was a banker going to jail. The sentence was one of the longest ever in British legal history for a white-collar crime. When he was sentencing Hayes, the judge said he was sending a message to the world of banking. However, today, Hayes is trying to clear his name and insists he wasn't guilty of anything at all. You're listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick, a podcast that takes a second look at big stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Tom Hayes, the first person to ever be jailed for rigging LIBOR and one of very few bankers around the world to be jailed after the financial crisis. Hayes was released from prison in January 2021 after more than five years behind bars. His sentence had been reduced to 11 years after an appeal. Now, Hayes is battling to clear his name entirely and wants the Criminal Cases Review Commission to quash his conviction. Other countries have ruled that LIBOR rigging like this was not a crime. LIBOR was measured every day by submissions from different financial institutions about the interest rates that they could borrow money at. Hayes, a trader, was accused of influencing and manipulating the submissions and those who made them. But other countries have ruled that it was within industry practice and widely accepted that the submissions could be set within a range and that that is what happened here. The US has recently thrown out its criminal charges against Hayes entirely. But the UK justice system is standing by the conviction. This is Hayes' story of what happened, his time in prison, and his battle to overturn his conviction. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into finance? So my understanding is you went to Nottingham, you did maths and engineering, and was it always the plan that you would then go into finance, or or was it something that you kind of just found your way into? No, 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 there was no grand plan. I mean, I basically went home the first summer, I was back from university, and uh, worked behind a bar, and um, I'd previously you know uh, a place I previously worked prior to university and I was earning I think two pounds 70 an hour and I was doing like 80 hour weeks and taking home like 200 quid and I worked all summer and I thought you know I actually I'd like to get a better paid job next summer so then I just thought well what's a well-paid internship and that was investment banking and yeah so I ended up becoming an intern at UBS and uh, was earning like six or seven hundred pounds a week um, and having more fun I mean, the only the only thing was my grandfather was a, um, a stockbroker for Mullins & Co., which was a government broker. They did all their gilts. 
you know, he 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 retired late, you know, because he enjoyed his work so much. And uh, I'd always gotten really well with him. And, you know, so in, in that respect, maybe there was some sort of like family sort of background of being in the finance industry. But certainly both my parents were probably um, would have rather I'd gone into something. Well, what they would describe as as as, as more honourable, you know for the good of the world as opposed to just like chasing the money. Did you enjoy it when you got into it? Yeah, I mean the thing is you get the highest highs and the lowest lows and you know, you know, have to I mean, some days I go to work feeling physically sick about walking into the office. You know, you don't you just don't know what the market's gonna throw at you on any given day and the stress is unbelievable and you're it's a twenty four seven job because the markets are open overnight. You know, when you go on holiday, you're never really on holiday. But, you know, there's a thrill in doing it that it's, it's hard to replicate, I think, in other professions sometimes. That that, that adrenaline, that stress. But, but, I mean, it's just like you But you are constantly sort of on edge as a result of it. Did you feel that you you were a natural? Did you feel... No, I felt I was a total failure. And, and to be honest with you, you spend most... I think the best people spend a lot of their time questioning themselves throughout their time because... One thing someone told me when I started training, which I thought was really sensible, is the market will always humble you. Like that humility is so much more important than hubris. And the moment you think you've got it and you've got it and you're doing really well, you just get, turn around and get slapped. So actually, you have to keep telling yourself no one's better than the market. You know, I mean, I, I, I think people like even like Warren Buffett and people who've been successful for years and years and years, the best guys question every decision they make again and again. Did did you see it as something you would you would always do? Well, I saw it as something where if I worked really hard, like really hard, which I did for the first ten or eleven years, you know, before this these events transpired, that you know it was something that I could do for twenty twenty five years and then make a more balanced decision about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. But you know, I think that guys who, you know, even guys who leave banks or hedge funds or whatever, often they go and you know trade their own capital or you know they want to be that there's something about the markets that are just very very for people who've been in them they find it hard to let go completely you know they're just i think it's a bit like people talk about leaving the army and coming back to civilian life and struggling with that notion and obviously i've had the experience of being in prison and coming out of prison and losing my job when I lost my job was like losing a piece of me. You know, I felt just totally empty. No one was sending me an email. I wasn't, I didn't, you know, where were my positions? You know, it was just my whole, a whole part of my identity was just poof, gone. Yeah. So you, it was RBS, then Royal Bank of Canada, then in, I think in 2006. UBS took me to Tokyo, yeah. Yeah. So what was Tokyo like? Well, I went over and I didn't speak the language and, um, but that I was trading Japanese yen. So I wanted to be in the center and it was the end of the zero interest rate policy at the time in Japan. And they just hiked rates and they hadn't had any sort of cash market or any sort of short term interest rates for like, you know, the last 15 years. There were a lot of opportunities for people who traded that part of the curve because they didn't have the people with that experience. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that was probably like sort of 06 to 09, you know, yeah, I just loved it. I mean, I like living in Japan. I love the Japanese people. I missed my football team, QPR, and I missed obviously my family. But I really, you know, I, I was worried about how I'd settle in. But aside from the fact I couldn't find any sausages, so I made my own sausages 
with a machine that my mum bought me for Christmas and I settled in okay, yeah. What meat did you use in the sausages? Oh, well, I could still get mince, but I mean, the thing was the only sausages you could buy were like these frankfurter type things, that, you know, like those awful things you get at like baseball games in the States with like, you know, just they're not real English sausages. So I used to bring rusk over from the UK and seasoning and make my own sausages and people used to want to buy them from me, but I wouldn't sell them. So when did LIBOR come into your day-to-day work well right from the start i traded interest rate derivatives it's like one of the benchmarks that lots of things settled against i mean but there is a misconception that every product i traded settled against libor it didn't because you know we trade overnight index swaps like tonar in the states which is tokyo tokyo overnight average rate um and i would trade you know uh, other currencies interest rates as well like dollars um and tybor which is the tokyo interbank offered rate but I mean, libel was always there. I mean, it was it was just it was it was ever present right from the word go right till the very end. There was never a moment where I wasn't in one way, shape, or form obsessed about where libels were on that day, but also where all the anticipated libel rates were. Because I mean, there's a there's a misconception as well that the focus is just on where the libel is published that day, which is just a small part of your overall risk because you have risk to anticipated rates going right out down the curve, as in like further out in time. So tell me about the financial crisis and, and the start of the credit crisis in, in 2007. How, do, how did things start to change? Well, I mean, it's sort of August 07, we thought the Bank of Japan, or people thought the Bank of Japan were going to hike again that month. And then the subprime started hitting and Northern Rock hit. And people, you know, liquidity started going out in the market. Spreads were getting wider, which I really enjoyed because I was always prepared to make a price. So it was difficult, but it was something that I, I enjoyed, that extra volatility and being able to market make. So that was 07. And then, um, you know, 08 came along and, you know, we bumbled along, you know, seemingly surviving in the financial markets until Lehman's went down. And then obviously all hell broke loose. You know, that was like, you know, going into the office at 3 a.m., you know, basically leaving the office at 3, back at 6, just very long days, very stressful, huge swings in P&L. You know, you could have like a $12 million swing in like two to four hours. But again, you know, actually it was a great time to be trading because as a trader, you want volatility and we had loads of volatility. I mean, it was a terrible time as well because Goldman's had tried to hire me in 08 and I'd stayed for about half the money at UBS. And then UBS ended up not paying me that because they lost so much in the subprime crisis. So that decision not to go to Goldman's cost me personally millions of dollars which is one of the things that annoyed me in my trial when they spoke about avarice all the time and greed. And I was just like, look, I turned down like, you know, a $3 million pay rise to stay where I was, you know, because I was quite happy where I was. Um, and that was really the catalyst in 09 when, when City tried to hire me. I just, I couldn't risk not being paid again, so I left. Hayes left UBS to join City in 2009, but was sacked a few months later over allegations he was trying to fix the LIBOR rate. He was arrested by officers from the Series Fraud Office in December 2012 and charged in June 2013. His alleged offences took place between August 2006 and September 2010 when he was at UBS and City. I'm not blaming my managers and I really want to make that clear because I don't think they did anything wrong either. I mean, I might not like some of them because some of them were happy to throw me under the bus. But believe me, I, as much as I might not like that aspect of it, n- nobody committed any crime here. Because I remember 
you know, I remember someone asked me, are you just pleading not guilty because you think, you, you know, your manager's got away with it? And I said, well, I don't like the premise of the question because to get away with something, you have to do something wrong initially. So, you know, even back in 2012, 2013, I was just, you know, nobody should be in a criminal trial for this. Just just to just expand on, on what you what you just said there, because now that that is now coming through the US courts and has been accepted pretty much everywhere apart from here in the UK. Yeah. That... There was nothing. It, it was widely known and also widely accepted, but also there was nothing wrong in setting libel within a range, and that exactly as you just said, it 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 was just standard practice. So could you just expand on that? Once the prosecution realised that you know that there was this range of numbers, and no one no one within the trading community lied about the rate. Lowballing in the Bank of England is a different story. You know, and obviously the BBC's looked into that quite closely with their radio series. But us guys, you know, it was about getting the best rate for the bank. UBS had their own IT system set up for euros, sterling and dollars in order to do that. The different trading desks would put in their trading positions. Those would be aggregated and a favourable rate would be submitted. It didn't have it set up for yen, unfortunately, which is one of the reasons there's a litany of emails that I sent. But effectively... You know, yes, were we looking for the best rate for us? Yeah, we were. Were we looking for an untruthful rate? No, we weren't. And once the prosecution realised that it was it, that was the situation, they had to somehow create a fraudulent misrepresentation, which would normally be a lie. So just in the most simple terms, if I went to buy a car from you and asked you if the engine was okay and you, it just, you just had it repaired because it had completely broken and you said, no, it's fine, it's never, never had a problem with it, that would be a misrepresentation. But, you know, if you ask me where we can borrow money and there are five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten rates I can borrow at, and in the same way you can get a mortgage at ten different fixed rates depending on which lender you ask or a credit card at ten different interest rates depending on which lender you go to, the lender has an app, you know, has their own cash positions they're interested in, have their own credit risk and appetite for lending. And by necessity, there's a number of different rates you can choose from. The difficulty was, of course, was the system was set up in a really conflicted way. And every submitter who submitted or chose that rate was also a trader with their own fiduciary duty to their employer. So, you know, we said to the trial judge, well, this is impossible. You know, like there's, you know, you can't suddenly say you've deliberately disregarded the rules, the rules being that you couldn't consider your commercial interest because the person choosing the rate was a trader. And the, the idea of independent rate and the submission system as it was then, they were mutually exclusive. It is worth remembering the backdrop to which Hayes was arrested and then tried. There was national fury towards bankers for the damage done by the financial crisis. During the Independent Commission on Banking hearings in 2013, Lord Nigel Lawson, the former Chancellor, said Hayes was a crook of the first order. George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor, said the government was taking money from those who represent the worst of British values to support those in uniform who demonstrate the best of British values. He was talking about how the LIBOR-rigging fines paid by banks were being given to military veterans. Then there was the comment from the judge too about sending a message to the banking industry with his sentencing of Hayes. I was that message, but... The reality is anyone who's working in the city now will just look at me as tremendously unlucky. And I, I don't think it would actually alter anyone's behaviour because they would think that's so improbable. I mean, this this whole situation for me was so improbable throughout the whole process. You know, I didn't think it was 
I'd, everything I'd done was in Japan. Japan didn't even sanction me on a regulatory basis. You know, I heard nothing in the UK. Then I'm suddenly arrested out of the blue. Then I'm thinking, oh, it's a great big mix up. The game changer was being charged in America, at which point, obviously, I was being told I was going to get a 30 year sentence over there. Had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And um, off the back of that, I, you know, I, I went into a cooperation program with the prosecution, which ultimately would have led to me giving evidence against my co defendants, which was something I wasn't prepared to do when I was finally charged. But obviously, in the course of those interviews, I made qualified admissions that were used heavily against me in my trial. I mean, what I did made zero sense, zero logical sense from a trading point of view. Because I've gone into this cooperation program, I've got the chance to maybe be in prison for 14 months in an open prison and keep a large portion of my money. And instead, I've turned around and said, no, I'm going to fight. And I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought. The other thing you said about it not making any sense is that all the emails and records were there for anyone to see. Well, I mean, look, I sent 2,000 requests. I said to my jury, I'm either the stupidest fraudster ever or I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I think the prosecution had like a total of, they, you know, there was a total of maybe 10 emails that they they said could sort of vaguely point to dishonesty. I mean, there, were, there was an email, a classic one, I'd written to my Japanese trainee in London where I said, don't. I'd written to him, don't put it in writing, when I was asking him to communicate with the cash desk because I wanted to engender a relationship between that guy and the guy who set the libels because all ultimately we were doing was asking for a favour. You know, there was no conspiracy here. It was like, you know, we could ask for a favour and they may or may not accept that. And so when, I, when I'm writing, don't put it in writing, no, that's pulled up at the trial as, look at, you know, look at he's being, there's all this subterfuge. Well, that's yeah. Five years, you know, two thousand requests. You've got that, which is entirely explainable, which I felt was like a real, real misrepresentation of the way that I operated because I operated. The judge in his sentencing marks called me brazen, you know, which is a very contradictive, um, you know, contradiction of his summing up where he'd sort of implied that I was in some way shady about what I did. I wasn't at all. The other, the other thing, obviously, about. The prosecution, which we can see now, is that no one was actually ever prosecuted for conspiring with you either. No, no, no. I'm in a conspiracy on my own. Um, all my co-defendants were acquitted. And every day, every day I served in prison, my six co-defendants, I did five and a half years. I was thinking, well, I'm doing a year for each of them because they're all at home with their families, bar one who sadly has passed away. And um, that was always a source of pride for me that I hadn't done what others had done to me, which was to lie about me at a trial. But they just didn't expect me to turn around and not do what I did. It was one of the reasons the judge was so apoplectic with me, I think. Um, the fact that I refused to give that evidence. But it is nonsensical because I worked in Tokyo for a Swiss bank. I didn't even get sanctioned by the Japanese where it's not a crime. I came to prison in the UK just on the back of the fact I'm a British resident. If I'd been French or German or Swiss or whatever, I, I wouldn't have faced the trial. Could you, when, when you look back, back now... Do you think what was going on was not, if legally wrong, morally wrong, or, or could be seen as dodgy in any sense, in the sense that while it was done within the range, it you were sort of working together to help each well, other Well, I mean, out. I think, the th like I go back to something I said at the very start, which is every submitter was a trader. So the, the, this notion of an independent submission is a fallacy. It just doesn't exist. I mean was the whole system, um, it was really interesting because a judge in the Second Circuit oral hearing, which was the thing that resulted in the legal ruling in the US, actually asked that question of the defence attorney. And he said, Your Honour, I could spend all day long talking about how badly libel was set up. 
how conflicted the whole process was. He said, but you can't blame the people who operated inside that that process for the genesis of that process and, and how it worked. Um, but there was su- the zeitgeist, as you mentioned at the start with the public, was so, you know, like basically they wanted bankers to go to prison. Um, and, I'm, you know, like I've used the phrase before, unfortunately, I was... I mean, there were nine people who got sentences in LIBOR cases in the UK, a total of 49 years and seven months. But I was the guy who really got hit disproportionately. And I, you know, I can't understand, you know, how my conviction can stand when I'm, you know, convicted of my own in a conspiracy to supposedly manipulate a rate that I didn't choose. And it's really interesting because from a, from a legal point of view, something can be you know, you can have Im- immorality if you're going to, and you're going to put it in those terms, but that doesn't equate to criminality. I mean, we've got immorality littered throughout society in the United Kingdom, you know, in, in, in business practices and in personal lives and whatever, but it doesn't necessarily equate to criminality. And if, if it is, if you are going to say something's criminal, then really it should be codified. And that's that's why you find all the places with with law which is based on you know code codification and statute you know all said this isn't the crime and you know it was the it was the it was the common law basis in the UK that allowed them to develop a legal case that in my mind is flawed. The Second Circuit recognised that, and we've never managed to get it in front of the Supreme Court because the Court of Appeal continues to refuse to certify it as a point of law. So did did you ever think when you were doing the job that you were doing anything wrong? Well, no, because you know what? I saw it going on all the time. I mean, and I think if I had done something wrong, I would have been more circumspect about it. Certainly, if I ever had any sort of moral conundrums, I used to go and speak to my manager. I was very, very careful about that. The only problem was, is I didn't always put it in writing, which was looking back on it was a mistake. But this was, I mean, I remember when I got fired, no one believed that I got fired for this because they said no one gets fired for that because it was just so inconceivable and I was like no I genuinely I I was saying to people no I genuinely got fired for that because they they literally did not believe it because I mean I had lunch with a friend and he said you know come on you know we know your year at City was going badly you'd lost a bit of money and I had you know that was a general consensus I'd been let go because of my profit and loss but it's not true at all I mean obviously facts have borne that out now but nobody could believe I'd been fired for it and I couldn't believe when when I first the investigation started at City if I'd been really worried I would have got my own lawyer I never got my own lawyer you know because my bosses and my the CEO were telling me I had nothing to worry about it was just you know box ticking exercise and I broadly went along with that and uh, yeah I would have had my own lawyer I would have been incredibly fearful you know I would have taken measures and precautions to maybe protect myself and my assets that I didn't um, do. I mean, and then when I couldn't get a job straight away after I was fired, I mean, I almost, I went to New York and I remember being in a skyscraper at B of A Merrill's and, you know, potentially having a job offer and then UBS warned them off me and they didn't hire me. And my view then, even then, was this is all just a storm in a teacup and it's going to blow over. And even when I was arrested by the SFO, I just thought, you know, this is misconceived they don't actually understand the case. The problem was, was the more they began to understand the case, the more they had to try and twist the law in order to bring a prosecution. Um, because under the 2006 F- Fraud Act, which is what sh- I sh- which was what should have been used to prosecute me, I hadn't made a fraudulent misrepresentation. 
they had to create this implied representation in a court or implied term in a court and say that retrospectively applied to us and we'd therefore broken the rules and therefore that in itself was the misrepresentation. Do you have any regrets about how you did the job? Well, I mean, only when I lost money. <laughs> like, but you can't make money all the time. Um, no, I wouldn't change anything. If you put me back there now with the information that I had at the time that I had it, with the openness of which I operated, UBS actually negotiated our fixed rate monthly payments to the brokerage ICAP for the LIBOR information that we got from those guys. I mean, that was negotiated by my managers. On August the 3rd, 2015, at Southwark Crown Court, Tom Hayes was convicted of eight counts of conspiracy to defraud and sentenced to a total of 14 years in prison. The guilty verdict and sentence was a new story around the world. I was sort of in a dream during my trial process. So, I mean, I honestly believed right up until, I mean, the jury deliberated from Monday to Monday and I thought there was enough people on the jury to at least leave a hung jury. So I was a bit shocked when I was found guilty on all counts and then given half an hour to go and say goodbye to my wife and my family and having dropped my son off at nursery that morning, wasn't going to see him again for a long time. Um, and then and then at the sentencing, he was obviously, he was a cruel judge rather than let me go home and say goodbye to my son and just actually at least prepare for my time away to just send me down literally within 30 minutes. He didn't want me to have any chance to say publicly what I would have said maybe on the steps of the court. Um, and he, I don't think, and I think he, he was, a, he was very vengeful, very, very cruel man. Sorry, I, I mean, it's, it, it hurts, but that's what I feel about him. What would you have said on the steps? I think I would have, well, first of all, I would have said that I don't blame the jury for their decision. I mean, they can only judge me on the evidence in front of them. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of stuff was misrepresented to them. Um, I mean, obviously, facts have come to light since then that I didn't know at the time. But I would have also said that I was going to contest the verdict, um, that I, you know, I would have protested my, continued to protest my innocence. And I think that, I think I would have, I would have basically had a chance just to say this process saw what I believe to be a lot of false evidence given in order to reach an outcome which was sort of reverse engineered. I mean, it was like the politics behind this meant that I had to go down and I was an existential threat to the serious fraud office. And I still am maybe an existential threat to them given, given you know, the series of debacles they've presided over. What, what was prison like? Well, we probably need a separate podcast for that. Um, but I was in six prisons. I was in high security prison for most of my um, most of my sentence. So five and a half years. You know, so I was, I was in high security prison for sort of you know almost four years of that. Um, medium security for sort of six months of that, um, and then open prison for the last eighteen months, which was rather curtailed by the lockdown restrictions of of COVID. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I was, I mean, I was sharing cells with guys who'd like murder people with, um, you know, Mac Ten machine guns. You know, I was throttled in my in my cell by one particular inmate. I won't mention the name. I can't, and I won't. Um, you know, I saw people die from drug overdoses. I saw people die from suicide. I saw, you know, some really violent instances like people getting their throats slit with tuna tin lids and you know various other things. 
people getting slashed and, you know, really very badly beaten. I mean, so I was surrounded by violence, by drug taking. Yeah, it was, I had, you know, I, I had my own mental breakdown and my own trouble. And I was filled with rage and bitterness, like very angry, very angry all the time, including with the people closest to me. And, uh, you know, that was something that I really struggled with until, you know, uh, the, the the chaplaincy and the prison fellowship and the church were really, really important to me to actually overcome that anger and that rage and that bitterness because it was eating me up inside. Well, what was that directed at? People who'd lied about me in my trial, um, people who I felt had wronged me, um, just just the whole feeling of unfairness of it all and the system, raging against the system. I had to get to a point where I was, I, I remember some people from the prison fellowship came in and they said, Tom, we want you to write letters to all the people who've, um, who you're angry with, you know, forgiving them and what you're forgiving them for. And that was quite cathartic. So I wrote these letters. They never got posted. And they said, right, Tom, now we want you to, um, you know, we want you to forgive them. Now we want you to like, you know, now you've written the letters, you, we, you need to forgive them. Now you need to pray for them. Now you need to love them. And I, I've never managed that. But it was it was like a weight had been taken off my shoulder the moment I let go of that rage and anger. How many letters was there? Uh, how many people who yeah. I'm really mad with? Um, about six or seven, about six or seven from memory, including people who I thought should have been on my side, but I felt had let me down. I mean, I've still got all the letters, the correspondence that I, I, my, obviously not the stuff that I wrote because I send that out, but all the stuff that was sent to me, and I still probably do have the letters that I wrote somewhere, if I if I could bring myself to go through them. But I've, it's quite painful for me going through some of my old prison diaries and letters because it brings me back to a dark place. Has that stayed with you? The 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 religion and and that process that you went through is that something you're you're still doing? today am i still a faith yeah i mean it was really important for me when i left prison to not lose my faith because it had been such an important thing for getting me through prison so i go regularly to westminster chapel which is just near buckingham palace um and um you know i i found that church whilst i was still in prison and i've got a great church family there um who have really helped me since i've come out and the you know it's the one one of the few places I don't feel judged. I mean, I find when I'm walking, if I if I get invited to meetings in the city, I walk along the road with my head down. You know, I I I, I get recognised in the city a little bit, and you know, I don't like that. I don't like seeing people talking about me because they recognise me. But that church family, I never feel judged by any of them. No. Why were you in high security? Because of my sentence length. There's an algorithm. As Boris Johnson called it, a mutant algorithm, but nothing to do with uh, the MOJ, to do with like deciding exam results. But this mutant algorithm decided because I had a really long sentence, I must be risky. I mean, people in prison did not believe that I was in for fraud because of the length of my sentence. I mean, there was strong rumours that I was in for some sort of de deviant sexual offence or something or other. But thankfully, because of because of my profile and because of the, you know, number of mobile phones in prison, I just say to people, go and do your own research. You know, you can find me online. So that must have been something that was at least quite helpful is that people could 
find out fairly quickly what had happened and that you were telling the truth on that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a strange one, though, because then they assume you're, like, really wealthy. I mean, the rumour went round that I'd stolen one cent out of every bank account in the world and that I had all this money tapped away and actually everything had been taken from me. And the more and more you protest that you have nothing, the less and less they believe you because there's more millionaires in prison than you'll ever meet anywhere else in your life. And the moment you're somebody who actually protests that you have nothing, they must they just automatically assume, well, he must have loads because he's saying he has nothing. Yeah, which is actually can be a threat in of itself because people do get taken hostage sometimes and money extorted from them, from relatives and what have you. So you just got to be wary of that. Hayes was released from prison in January 2021 with Britain in lockdown during the COVID-19 pandemic. His marriage did not survive prison but he and his wife, Sarah, remain on good terms and she was there with their son to greet him on the day he was released from Ford Open Prison in West Sussex. He is now working to get his conviction overturned with the CCRC, the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Well, I was released into lockdown, which I was strangely grateful about, actually, because I didn't want there to be a big fanfare. I didn't want there to have parties. I wasn't great in large groups of people. You know, I'd... I'd become somewhat institutionalised. You know, when I first came out, I ate all my meals in my bedroom. I did all my work in my bedroom. You know, I, 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 I basically, my, be my bedroom became my new cell, if you like. Um, and so I would do most things within my own bedroom rather than actually use the other rooms where I live. Um, but for me, it just felt m like masses of, freedom for me I've walked around Regent's Park loads in the snow it really snowed and I just remember walking around in the snow and it was like there was nobody it was just like a blizzard and snow and I just felt such freedom that I was out in this place with no walls and no bars and I could walk freely and even though we we're in lockdown you know I could go to a supermarket I could walk around a park you know I could see my brother who I was in a bubble with and actually you know, it was quite, It was it, coming out in lockdown was quite nice because it allowed me to just sort of start readjusting in a way that was slightly slower paced than having to suddenly go and see everybody. Oh, it would be good to see you, it would be good to see you, it would be good to see you. You know, I was I couldn't see anyone because I was in lockdown. So it was it was actually, in some senses, it worked out for me being released around then. You, you, you've spoken about this before, but it, you... It's worth reminding people you were released on license, so there were still all sorts of restrictions. That I you, still am on yeah, license. Yeah, all yeah. sorts of restrictions that you have to go through. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I'm on standard license conditions. I can't really talk about my probation officer and what I can and can't do, but I can't travel. Um, you know, I can't go overseas. You know, I have to inform her about what jobs I have and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you're not free when you're on license. And I've got another, um, well, just over three and a half years of being on license. But I mean, obviously, I'm hoping my conviction gets overturned next year, which means my license conditions will will cease. So let's talk on that. What is the latest stage of the case and your attempts to get the conviction overturned? So early December last year, much to my disbelief and disbelief of my legal team, my in, my initial application to the CCRC was rejected by the CCRC, despite what we thought was a very very strong case. I mean, it was really that was a bolt out of the blue and just a total shock to us. And had to make the decision whether we were going to contest this initial decision or whether I was just going to say, well, in February it becomes finalised and not contest it. And um, I was given really conflicting advice because 
people close to me, some people were saying, listen, just leave it. You're never going to get justice in the British justice system. You know, this is a stitch up. You've just got to let it go. Where are you going to find like another forty thousand pounds, you know, for for the next round of fighting, which was which was what it was going to cost me effectively, and um, you know, I, I I took that counsel really quite seriously, but there was just something in me, and I and I hate to say I'm a fighter not a quitter because the last person who said that resigned shortly after, but I just thought you know what I will never forgive myself if in forty years time I haven't at least tried. So, you know, so we, we got a great legal team together, Adrian Darbyshire QC, Karen Todd and my solicitor, you know, instructed him. And we, we made further representations to the CCRC and we had made an oral presentation to the CCRC following that. But the, the real game changer was the 27th of January this year when Connolly and Black, the Second Circuit Appeals Court in America just said, you know, there were no rules you can't create an implied representation where there are no rules and motivation in of itself can't create falsity. You know, it's not the fraud law is not meant to be a broad catch all, which is meant to catch every type of behavior that you may or may not find palatable. Um, and that obviously then left the UK out on a complete outlier, being the only place where it's a criminal offense. And then the second thing that happened obviously was Andy Verity as his radio series, um, exposing some of the things that had happened to us. I mean, that was actually broadcast during the, you know, onset of the Ukraine war. So I didn't get the attention that it might otherwise have got. But, you know, if you haven't listened to that, that's well worth listening to. And then in the last month or so, we've obviously had the US throwing out the charges. Yeah, yeah. They threw out my charges, which is really interesting because I am, by throwing out my charges, obviously there I am identical on both sides of the Atlantic. Same facts, same evidence, same case in law. And, you know, if you read the dismissal papers, it, it says in the interest of justice, it was based on a, a flawed theory of law. And that motion was was filed by the prosecution, by the head of the fraud division of the Department of Justice. Do you think the city's changed at all? Well, I've not been in the city for 10 years. So, um, but look, the biggest crime in the city is losing money. And and twas thus, twill ever be, I think. Um, so I, I I doubt it. Because the point is, is people are asked to look for edges and when you get rewarded to look for edges and when everybody accepts that being smart and looking for an edge is something to be celebrated, then I can't see how in the long run it will change. I mean, look, you know, FTX just went down in the crypto space and OK, yes, it's unregulated, but it's human history. There, there will never be a final scandal. There will always be another scandal. Do you miss trading? Yeah, just one word answer. Yeah, I do. Do is it something if the conviction is overturned, is it something in the future you'd like to get back into again, whether doing it yourself or doing it in a different way? I mean, in terms of your life and career moving forward from here, what sort of things would you like to do? Well, I mean, I've, there's various people, various quite wealthy people who've asked me if I'd like to sort of manage some money for them, but I can't at the current time. But I mean, my therapist says to me, I've really got to just try and think 24 hours ahead because there's so many uncertainties in my life. The moment I start trying to operate on a on a, a longer time frame, I you know it, I find it quite difficult because I just I just don't know what's going to happen. And every time I think something's going to happen, then you know if it doesn't happen, then I'm like absolutely crushed with disappointment. So I really do try and live on sort of a what's happening tomorrow basis rather than what's happening next year, next ten years, because when I do that, the future is significantly more scary. You've touched on this a little bit already, but. Do you feel like you were a scapegoat 
for the, for the whole banking crisis? I think it's really important. One thing I've really tried to to to, to get through to people is. 24 people prosecuted by the SFO, four, four of them abroad and they were eventually dropped because they couldn't extradite them. You know, 11 acquittals, nine people, you know, found guilty, 49 years and seven months of sentences. I'm not the only person. And oh, yes, my treatment was the most extreme, the most egregious in terms of like my sentence length and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not the only victim here. And sometimes I just feel that that gets lost a little bit because everyone just focuses on me because I was first and had the biggest sentence and other people had their lives ruined. Even the people who were acquitted had their lives ruined by this. This should never have been a criminal matter, ever. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to and read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our sister publication, Off to Lunch where you can find not only bonus content, but business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.